So there's lots of news to talk about, and we're in the right place to do it. It's This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and I'm here with columnist Mark Namick, reporters Mary Kilpatrick and Rich Exner, and politics editor Jane Cahoon. And today we begin with Jane, where we know there's been lots of news coming from Columbus. Let's start with the, uh, the House version of the budget, which is by no means final because we still have to have the Senate <laughs> version of the budget and everything is different than the Mike DeWine version of the budget. They decided to um, amend the budget further before it came out of committee and now they've changed the tax cuts. Uh, so they are still giving the, um, if you earn uh $22,250 a year or less, you won't pay any income taxes. And then they um, gave an average reduction uh, in the rate of like 6.6% to all the rest of us. So before where the tax cuts were more targeted to the lower incomes, now it's for everybody because the Speaker Larry Householder thinks people should have more disposable income and that will help stimulate our economy. So before they got to this point, they had already made some changes in the budget by wiping out the film tax credit and some other things. Correct. Where Where is the extra money going to come from to give us all more of our taxes back? Uh, let's see. It's a total of about $108 million. So uh, I don't know the whole breakdown, but they, that the film tax credit is still out and... Um, but the truth is, it doesn't really matter because this is just <laughs> one increment, right? It is clear right, we right. have people in the Senate that already don't like the film tax right, credit right. Uh, being wiped out and that the Senate will come back with some some other other changes. Were there any right. other things thrown into this at the last minute? Uh, there's some health care transparency stuff about letting people know what things are going to cost. Uh, there are some things about pharmacy benefit managers, um, uh, to prevent them from bilking the state. And um, let's see, what else do we have? Oh, they uh, they are going to short-circuit Toledo's uh, um yeah, let's get Lake to that Gary later thing. when we talk about Lake um, Gary. Yeah. Let, let, let's talk about the film tax credit. Uh, Laura Hancock did a nice piece this week about um, the potential resistance to that. And just, just so people know, the film tax credit has been $40 million a year. Uh, it has, in many ways, spurred a lot of spending in the state on movies, the Avengers and Spider-Man and all those movies that were shot here. Um, there had been an effort to increase it to $100 million. It had some steam a year ago. Uh, but now the House wants to wipe it out. What what do we think might happen in the Senate? Wow. Well, uh, the Speaker uh, told Jeremy P- Jeremy Pelzer yesterday that um, looks like we're going to have a disagreement on this. Uh, I think when this gets to the Senate, it's going to face a big roadblock. Uh, Matt Dolan, who chairs the Finance Committee, we talked about this last week, is a big fan. He says why... Um, why change something that's working? It's you know, and uh, so and and even people in the House, um, people like Tom Patton, he still has a bill that would expand it to a hundred million. And um, and Tom and, was one of the original um, uh, sponsors of that bill, right? In two thousand, right, right. And um, and uh, just the other day, the Senate voted to expand it in another way by adding live um, theater productions to the tax credits. So there is a definite, um, 
you know, battle lines being drawn here. All right. One other thing they put into the budget, which was a little bit shocking. <laughs> We've been talking for years now about First Energy's effort to have us all subsidize their aging nuclear plants. As natural gas has become cheaper, nuclear energy has become too expensive, and the only way they can keep those plants going is if they get a subsidy. All those efforts until very recently seemed to have been rebuffed, but now the train is going down the tracks. It looks like they'll get it. But the legislature looks like they don't think that's enough. So what did they do in this <laughs> latest budget bill this, this, to boost them? Uh, this House leadership is is very friendly to First Energy, and an amendment popped up uh, that would uh, – it has to do with um, significantly excessive profits. Uh, when utilities earn excessive profits, they're required to return them to customers, and uh, this would allow First Energy to average things out um, among the three subsidiaries, um, CEI, Ohio Edison, and Toledo Edison. And Ohio Edison could earn like a big profit, and then the lower profits of um, the other two would average it out. So they wouldn't have to return those excess profits from Ohio Edison. Yeah, the upshot is <laughs> up until now, they have to give more money back to us because they're making too much. Right. This is a formula that allows them to keep more of our money, even while we're being asked to subsidize First Energy's aging nuclear plants. Right. And the thing about this is, uh, this happens uh, frequently during the budget process. Amendments will crop up and nobody knows who's behind them, as is the case with this one we've asked. And nobody seems to know who brought forth this amendment. So, although, uh, although we know who's behind it, it's the <laughs> utilities who provide lots of money to these legislators yes, to run. Yes, but you know, if you're going to make an amendment, I think the public deserves to know who's who's proposing it. Yeah, we got to know who's in whose <laughs> pocket. All right. Uh, big news uh, for Ohio yesterday started with a tweet from the president uh, who, who announced that the Lordstown plant had been sold. And as we often learn uh, from tweets from this president, not so much the truth. Uh, what's going What's the news for Lordstown? So the news is that uh, GM is in negotiations with a Cincinnati area um, electric truck maker to uh, buy Lordstown. Um, but it's by no means a done deal. And in fact, the, the governor, who was uh, kind of taken a little bit by surprise here, was urging caution that, hey, this isn't done. Well, it's not just not a done deal. It's a company that does, does not have a lot in assets, does right. not have a lot in revenue. And even if this happens, we're not talking anywhere near the Lordstown level of jobs, right, Mark? Right. And, and let's back up and begin with, you know, what we've heard before from the president, right? The carrier air conditioning company, the Harley Davidson, you know, he gets out front because it looks good politically to talk up jobs. And we know in those cases I just mentioned, things didn't work out exactly as they promised. There are three big issues that sit here. You have to first decide if they can cut a deal with GM to, to, to make it. Then you have to, you know, really before that happens, know whether or not they're going to get a contract from the U.S. Postal Service to produce these electric trucks. And then, you know, and do they have the capability to even meet the contract? And third is you still have to work with 
uh, most likely the the unions behind uh, you know the Lordstown Auto Workers because they're going to have to negotiate something. Now they the, the company has signaled they're you know open to this idea of, of grabbing these trained workers. Those are big, big, big issues that really you can't put in a tweet. The um, the odd thing too is when you look at this deal compared to the Bernie Moreno deal at Lordstown. You know there was some reporting, not by us, that he had made a bid to keep that plant much more healthy, building cars for some kind of new company that would provide ride services like Uber, but with employees. You know that that was a, a more substantive plan that GM. Um, rejected, but they're willing to to consider this one. It just seems a little strange. Mary? Do you think that the president tweeting that there was a deal, do you think that pushes anything in the direction towards a deal? Do you think that changes anybody's mind or, you know, will push a deal? I'm just kind of curious, like, since the president weighed in, does that you know, make these people want to work faster towards making this happen, or does that incentivize them to make it happen? I think possibly it could, but really I think what's behind this is that the the president is aware that Democrats are seizing on this issue, that he's abandoned that area, and he does not want to alienate um, a place where he's gotten support. Right, and, but and because of the way this comes out, he gets to claim a victory even though nothing's final. So right. he can get, you know, if nothing came of this, say this all fizzled and it went away like the Bernie Moreno plan, he never gets to have his day in the sun. But by issuing the tweet, he gets to say rah, rah, he gets some attention. And then if it fizzles later, you know, that's much, much less on the radar. Correct, yes. So. Um, let's not forget also, though, there is one element of solid good news here, and that is that GM is going to be investing I think it's $700 million uh, into its factories in Parma, Toledo, and Moraine. So that's for real, and that's one element of, of good news here. Yeah, that that'll be good for the Ohio economy. Okay, let's move on to a new topic. The uh, uh, Late last week, um, we got some news about the gerrymandering case in which uh, the uh, appeals court said uh, Ohio had to redraw its districts, and there's been a lot of movement in the past week about that. Rich Exner, you you were one of the leaders in the charge to try and get changes made to how our districts are drawn. Bring us up to date. Where do we stand? What's going on? What's significant to know? Well, three judges uh, ruled last Friday, uh, perhaps for some to note importantly that it was two, two judges appointed by Democratic presidents and one uh, appointed by Republican president, ruled unanimously that um, Ohio's congressional district maps, as they exist now, are unconstitutional. They gave the state until June 14th to come up with new maps to put in place to get the ball rolling for election 2020. In the meantime, the state, as would be expected, has appealed, uh, and they're asking that this ruling not be enforced while we wait on a ruling on, uh, from the U.S. Supreme Court on a couple of cases from other states. Uh, as it stands now, we don't know what, how that's going to go on the appeal. Um, the theory on the state is that the, the state believes uh, Attorney General uh, Dave Yostin is a in his appeal that uh, cases out of uh, Maryland and North Carolina will be overturned and say that gerrymandering is okay. The, the Attorney General isn't really saying that these maps were not gerrymandered, but that there's nothing wrong with it. But but there is a clock here. We do need to get if, – if the maps are going to be redrawn for the 2020 election, we have a limited amount of time to do it. Is there any movement by people in case – 
they lose this appeal to start this process? And if they were to start this process, whose job is it? Well, they certainly not not much has been said so far about moving forward quickly. Uh, the state legislature that's their job to do it. Um, the the state is on record as saying that they need maps in place by September at the latest to get ready for next year's election. Of course, that could be a fuzzy timeline. Pennsylvania did it with a much shorter timeline when they were under the gun. We'll talk a little bit about that. You did a story this week saying, you know, we're talking about this like a short deadline, but but Pennsylvania did it much more quickly. What happened there? Pennsylvania did it the result of a a loss in a state court. The uh, Pennsylvania State Supreme Court tossed their maps and ordered. They basically gave them about three weeks to come up with new maps. In that case, you had a Republican legislature that offered up some ideas that were rejected by the Democratic governor. So the, so the state Supreme Court, in less than a month's time after the ruling, enacted new maps. And less than three months later, they had their primaries, and they came off. It didn't seem to be any problem, and they, and they did it fairly quickly. In Ohio, the, the Ohio Secretary of State's on record saying they need this by September. It's still plenty of time to get it done. There's no, no talk of anything being done before the 2020 election, so there is time to do it. But the concern amongst the people who brought the um, brought the complaint, filed the lawsuit, is that it's just another tactic by the state of Ohio and Republicans to try to run out the clock because the case will always come up. It has gone to the Supreme Court before where you can't disrupt an election too close to an election. We disrupt our elections too close to an election every, every cycle. Uh, Jane, the this is a fascinating dynamic this time because even though there are super majorities of Republicans in the legislature, the battle for House Speaker, the Democrats were able to assert themselves into the coalition that supported Householder. So if the legislature has to draw new lines, the Democrats actually have a chance to influence that, right? Right. And, you know, the new map isn't going to pass muster with the court if it's... If- it's horribly gerrymandered again in favor of the Republicans. So there's that. Uh, the House Minority Leader, Amelia Sykes, yesterday called for them to resurrect this bipartisan redistricting task force that last met in 2011. And her message was, let's get moving on this. Um, Jeremy Pelzer asked the House Speaker, well, who's going to be in the room, you know, when we do this? And the House Speaker too soon, too soon to tell, too soon to tell. I have a suggestion. Rich Exner. He's already <laughs> proposed very balanced districts. He should be in the room. Mary. You know, in 2011, when they drew the last set of maps that were declared, you know, um, gerrymandered, they did some of the work, or contractors did some of the work from a hotel room that was called the bunker. Do we think that's going to happen again? Well, if it is, we'll be sitting outside. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think they're going to get away with that well, this time. because the Democrats actually have a seat at the table. Correct. I mean, this, this speaker fight really did provide a very odd dynamic where the tiny minority has some influence, and so we'll have to see how it goes. Rich? Well, there's been a lot of talk, too. The Democrats want this because the Republicans drew it this way, and the Democrats did it the same way when they were in charge. Number one, I, I couldn't find a time going back, um, you know, 75 years or so where the Democrats actually had the full control in Ohio. But... Forget Democrat or Republican. A- any voter is an issue here. If you're a Republican in Marsha Fudge's district, which which was drawn to make it as Democrat as possible to keep Democrats out of other districts, what say do you have at the voting booth when Marsha Fudge is run every election with, with about 80% of the vote? Same goes in Columbus, uh, Joyce Beatty's district. It was designed to put as many Democrats as possible 
in that district, and she's won every time, 65 to 70%. So if you're a Republican there, what voice are you having on Election Day? Uh, so it's really voters of both parties that, that pay on this. And then uh, to show how well this was done, there was a lot of change in voter sentiment um, in the 2018 election, but it's still the same 12 seats were won. And I wonder if, if Joyce Beatty's district wasn't drawn so Democratic in Columbus, if that open seat with Tiberi uh, could have been more competitive. Well, I'm going to jump on on uh, his point that the politics are getting in the way of of the reality. Uh, that that ruling here's my favorite quote from that ruling is that the Democratic candidates must run a significantly longer distance to get to the same finish line. The judges wrote, and and a great example of that is is the you know snake on the lake, which is a reference to this long narrow district for Marcy Captor, a Democrat that runs, you know, from Cleveland up to Sandusky. Um, and I, th- I think that's where we have to stay focused. There's, you know, crazy aspects of this map that would make no sense to a third grader who could draw a more proportional map. Now, I know there's lots of issues that go into it. And right now you're hearing pushback from Republicans who are saying, well, look, the Democrats all got behind this. Hey, look, Democrats had self-interest in it, too. There were certain Democrats that would be happy to have that very small map, as Rich just described, or district for guaranteeing seats to certain people. It's got to come out of their hands because the evidence is a map, and it's something that you can't argue with. Right, it makes sense. It's a bad map. All right, speaking of, uh, of blocking the flow of natural progress, Mary, you had a story this week on uh, the removal of a uh, uh, dam in the Cuyahoga River to bring that back to its natural state. What's going on there? Well, if anybody's been wondering why I've been talking about this dam story for the past two days, it's because I was writing a story about a dam. Um, so uh, basically, they're removing this dam in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park in Brecksville because of the environmental problems it causes and because of the danger it poses to people who want to recreate on the river. So kayakers, canoeists, etc. This project's going to cost $1.5 million. Uh, The city of Akron is contributing. The U.S. EPA is contributing. This is one of a series of dams that they've been removing in the last several years because dams cause uh, problems for fish and uh, they create a dangerous environment for people who want to uh, recreate on, on the river. So, uh, so yeah, if you're a fish um, and you want to swim downstream toward Akron, uh, that's where you uh, spawn, uh, you can't right now. You stop because the dam's blocking it. And, and this is right by that iconic arched bridge, right? So when this is gone, people will finally be able to canoe or kayak beneath that bridge, which they can't do now because the dam is pretty pretty turbulent. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's a, it, it was described to me as a death trap. It's, it's really not safe to, uh, to, to be on that part of the river. But uh, yeah, they plan to get it out of there uh, sometime this year. And uh, I think it's going to be uh, you know, the environmentalist that I talked to said it's going to be really good for the fish community in the Cuyahoga River um, because it's going to convert a stream back to its natural habitat, a stream. Right now it's kind of a lake in that area. And uh, there's a bald eagle's nest very close to that, so if the fish return there, it'll probably give them better grounds. Okay, we got to go to a break. Uh, this is This Week in the CLE. We've been telling you for a few weeks now about Project Text, in which you and our writers engage with each other through text messaging. Here's a great deal. 
a free trial to Project Text for the month of May. Sign up at cleveland.com slash projecttext slash free trial and get daily text messages from your favorite writers like Browns Beat reporter Mary Kay Cabot, sports columnist Doug LaMarise, and pop culture guru Troy Smith. And we're back at This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn here with Mark Namick. And in this segment, reporters Eric Heisek, Courtney Astolfi, and Pete Krauss. Before we get started, uh, I should mention uh, that uh, the appeals court, U.S. appeals court, has uh, denied Ohio's bid uh, to delay redrawing the districts that we discussed in the uh, previous segment. Uh, they can still appeal that to the Ohio Supreme Court. Otherwise, they've got to get to work drawing the, uh, the new districts. We start this segment with a discussion about Lake Erie. Uh, Eric, you uh, had a um, interesting ruling come out of uh, federal court this week. The, the, your beat here, what what happened? It was uh, basically some litigation that has been going on for a little while. Um, the state, um, basically involving the state of Ohio and whether or not a measure Toledo residents passed during a special election in February would uh, essentially allow them to file lawsuits on behalf of the lake. I mean, this is a segment of the uh, the state that has had some issues. In uh, 2014, the algal bloom basically rendered a lot of the city unable to actually drink water and use it for purposes that, you know, most of us take for granted in this state and across the country. Right. And Toledo voters went to the polls to basically give status as an entity, like a human being, to Lake Erie that many people hoped would apply around the state, but of course Lake Erie fronts on not just a bunch of states, but but two countries. So uh, in this ruling, the judge does not agree that Lake Erie has standing like you or I might. Right. It's a little more nuanced than that, but yes, that is generally accurate. Uh, the day after the, uh, the bill was passed in February, there were these farmers from neighboring Wood County that sued, basically said this law was unconstitutional. The law, essentially, under state law, gives residents the ability to file lawsuits on behalf of the lake. Hey, look, you're harming me. It almost feels like the primordial being coming out of the water and walking into court and saying, I have standing, let me in, let me protect myself. This lawsuit was filed in federal court. The judge basically said there is no way for um, a non-sentient being, i.e. a lake, an ecological system, to defend itself in court. He called the uh, request by some advocacy groups meritless and said there really isn't any standing in state law or, excuse me, in federal law to uh, allow this to go on. Maybe if we keep polluting it, it'll eventually become senient. There was also some late news yesterday out of the legislature involving the Toledo um, initiative. Uh, the legislature, the House, added to its budget bill um, a clause that would prevent things like what Toledo did from happening. Uh, so this is really under attack under two fronts. Right, right. I mean, this is something, uh, and you're talking about, when you say attack, you're talking about basically ways to ameliorate the issues that Toledo has had with the algae bloom from a newer runoff and uh, other issues that essentially pollute the lake. Right. Toledo, uh, look, if you had gone four days without being able to drink the water from your tap, you'd have been pretty frustrated. So they went to the polls and voted in large numbers to, to vest it with this status. But now a federal court and the House appears ready to uh, deny them the ability to do that. Right. Um, and this ruling is by no means the one that ends the lawsuit completely. This lawsuit is essentially trying to strike down this law as unconstitutional. Um, 
the there are people as i.e the, the city of toledo they have a duty under basically under law to defend something that's uh, taxpayers essentially pass, so that's what they are tasked with doing. Now, Lake Erie and Toledoans for Safe Water, the organization that was um, basically trying to get the lake to be recognized as a party to this, um, they don't think the, the city of Toledo will actually do a very good job to do to defend this law and say this should stay into effect, stay in effect. Uh, they cite instances where uh, politicians were campaigning against the law before it went in. Um, but either way, it is under. It's it, it's interesting to call it under attack, and I guess we'll see what happens. It's you had another story this week that that's interesting on a national scale. Uh, the former U.S. attorney you used to cover him before he left uh, was a part of a group that that took a, a pretty powerful stand. What happened there? So there are I think about nine or ten now out of about eight hundred signatories on a letter, an open letter published on the website Medium. Uh, that was essentially saying, you know, we are all former federal prosecutors at various levels of the government, and we would, if if we saw the evidence that Special Counsel Robert Mueller put out there, uh, we would have, there is enough evidence to charge the president with obstruction of justice, um, which is something the Attorney General, the current Attorney General, Bill Barr, said uh, he decided there wasn't enough evidence to do so. These prosecutors, some of whom are from Ohio, said yes, absolutely, there is enough evidence to charge, and we wouldn't we wouldn't be having this conversation if he wasn't the sitting president. So, who are some of the names from Ohio that people would recognize? Well, you mentioned one of them, uh, Steve Dettelback, a former Ohio Attorney General candidate who lost last year to Dave Yost. He was the U.S. Attorney in Cleveland for uh, about six and a half years. Obama appointee now works at Baker Hosteller. He's probably the most high-profile one, but going through the list, I was calling around to people. Not everybody listed themselves as being from Ohio, but we have other people in there, such as Assistant U.S. Attorney Ann Rowland, who, if you're talking about corruption, there's probably not a better expert in this city uh, than Ann Rowland, and she signed on to this very fairly. Ann fa- Rowland was the prosecutor in the Jimmy DeMora case, so she came to fame here for that. Right. Um, former Sixth, Sixth Circuit Judge uh, Nate Jones, who's now an attorney in Cincinnati, he was in a U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney in Cleveland in the 1960s, later became the uh, general counsel for the NAACP. He signed on. Fairly prominent Cleveland attorney, Sabod Chandra, signed on. He was an assistant U.S. attorney in the late 90s and early 2000s. Now, that's no surprise. You would expect Sabod Chandra to sign on to something like this. Anybody who reads Sabod Chandra's Twitter feed for about five minutes, uh, you kind of are surprised he wasn't the first one to sign <laughs> on to this. Um, the you got to wonder, if you're Bill Barr and you're looking at this list of people, does it cause you pause? I mean, these were all people in positions very similar to yours saying, no doubt about it, this is a crime we would charge. I know you can't read into his mind, but you got to think that's causing, uh, causing some questions. Well, I think purely from a news perspective, the idea that this essentially led a lot of political news outlets um, – websites for a couple of days yes probably did give people pause it was and it was kind of a stinging rebuke which i'm not sure he totally expected like you know he went out there very authoritatively said no there is not enough evidence for obstruction of justice you know having 800 people at this point it's 800 i think when i wrote the story it was about 735 Uh, if you have 800 plus former employees of the doj saying something yeah it's likely going to give somebody pause Mm -hmm. it's it's these people aren't 
you know, regardless of what side you stand on this, it's hard to dismiss this as merely just a, you know, a lark or a few people who think this wing nuts, fringe, whatever. We uh, we had something happen at Cleveland.com that uh, this week that doesn't happen very often. On the very day we launched a a five day project, a, a huge change came in the news we were reporting. Um, Monday, Pete Krauss launched Cleveland 2030, uh, a way forward in which we're going to be examining the different ways uh, Cleveland can imagine what it wants to be in 2030 and how it would get there. And we began that with a look at St. Louis, which was launched on a uh, a proposal to merge its many municipal governments into a single government. Uh, Pete wrote about that uh, in his introductory story Monday, and at the end of the day Monday, the entire St. Louis effort collapsed, um, which we actually think provides even better lessons for Cleveland because St. Louis tried to climb that mountain and failed, and how they failed offers guidance. So, Pete, talk a little bit about what what you're thinking now that you're completing this. Um, Well, yeah, the the effort did collapse for a lot of understandable reasons out in St. Louis. What they wanted to do was merge the city of St. Louis with the county of St. Louis and convert 88 smaller cities, towns, and villages into what they were going to call municipal districts, but take away their policing authority, their economic uh, development authority, put it under this one central government. It was a very transformational plan. It was designed to uh, revitalize their sluggish economy. And the reason we are interested in it here in Cleveland is because their demographics are very similar to ours. We have the same kind of fragmented political landscape. So we went out there. I went out there for two or three days. I talked to just about everybody about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, uh, we wrote about it. No sooner did we write about it than than uh, it came down, came crashing down on Monday. All right. So let's go over <laughs> let's go over each of the reasons that jump out as to why it failed. One was they really had not ensured that African Americans would get a fair representation in seats of power, or at least they hadn't convinced them of that. Right. That's one of the issues. It, it was a big issue. Um, they we're going to create one single government with uh, 33 council districts and one mayor. They felt that was enough districts to uh, represent the demographics as they are now. In other words, a lot of opportunity for African Americans to be elected to the city council. They thought it was going to be in uh, that with all those districts, there was the ability to create caucuses so that concerns of ethnic groups or whoever could be uh, could be pursued. But there is a lot of Distrust in St. Louis going back centuries. As there is here. Right. Uh, and, but even probably more so there, a lot of distrust in the African-American community that promises aren't going to be kept, uh, that they aren't going to get their fair share. Uh, and, uh, and despite a, a lot of effort being put into this to try to convince the African-American community and, and, the, uh, and the lower socioeconomic rung of the community that resources were going to be coming their way, they weren't buying into it. Another big reason was because of the mechanics of this thing, it was going to require a statewide vote. And apparently that really made people bristle that the entire state could be deciding the fate of St. Louis without getting into the weeds too much. Why did it require a statewide vote? Yeah, that, that was a biggie. Um, it required a statewide vote because one of the things they wanted to do was merge 55 police departments into one. 
And in doing that, they were going to have to amend the Constitution, uh, the, the, the state Constitution. They were going to have to create a whole different form of government. So they, it, it, they absolutely had to have a statewide vote on that. And, and what the people in St. Louis were saying is that, well, uh, you know, people who don't even care about us are going to decide our fate. Um, so they said that for that reason, they were, and that reason alone for, I think, a lot of people, they were against it. Where do you go if you're in Cleveland now, as we're about to launch on these conversations through the appreciative inquiry effort and other things that are going on? Where do you go now to avoid these landmines that have have pretty much collapsed this effort in St. Louis? Well, obviously, there's there's big lessons to be learned here in Cleveland. I've already talked to a few people who are involved in the appreciative inquiry um, uh, effort and uh, are looking to, uh, you know, perhaps promote some transformational change here locally. And they see that there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. But I think the overriding one is make sure you have consensus. Make sure that you you touch bases with everybody early on and that they're on board and part of the part of the plan. When Cuyahoga County voters pushed to change its charter to change the form of government, we saw a little microcosm of this. We know that many African-American leaders, from ministers to top elected officials, worried that the representation of African-Americans would be lost, both by office holders and their, their issues. So we know that that's there. And, and we don't know the answer. Could we have gotten through it? What powered that... Uh, you know, reform really was what was going on at the time, which was all of the corruption. And I think that really did sway voters and push them forward on it. Um, you know, they did try to pull leaders in to to back the thing, and they really stressed that having a county council would actually open up potentially more opportunities for people of color and minorities to get on on rep- and represent their districts. And so they spent time on how they were going to draw those where they would include but you know we saw that little microcosm of of that push and and i think doing it on a larger scale which is what would be required on this um that's going to be really dicey here well there is there is the uh, the appreciative inquiry effort which will will kind of get off in earnest in late june they're going there will be some of these common ground discussions these these small talks people have over meals that were announced this week they're repeating that cleveland foundation sponsors it and a bunch of those will be geared at gathering community consensus heading into that. Um, and as part of what we're doing, the Cleveland 2030 Project, which is part of Cleveland Connect, sponsored by PNC, we're talking about ways to bring that into the community to get more discussions. That sounds like it's kind of key, right, to, to bring as many people in early to say, what do you want Greater Cleveland to be in 2030 uh, as you head forward, Pete. Well, that's exactly right, and and the fact that the the, uh, the St. Louis project uh, that we we had to shift gears. You know, we we've done a lot of rewriting in the last three or four days to reflect the fact that that merger proposal went down. But I think the the as you mentioned, the lessons are the same whether that proposal went ahead or the fact that it came crashing down. There's still a lot to learn from all of that, and that is um, I think there's a lot of fodder there for for Cleveland. Pete's Projects uh, Complete is on uh, cleveland.com, and you can find it there. Uh, it's uh, the, the key words are Cleveland 2030. Uh, it seems like no episode of This Week in the CLE would be complete without a discussion about another revelation at the county jail. And this week, while they're dealing with all of their bad conditions and their repeated lockdowns, it turns out they've got some staff problems that they've got to deal with. What happened, Courtney? 
Yeah, reporter Corey Schaefer really detailed for us an incident in which a jail guard was hired after she left the juvenile facility in town as part of an incident where urine was thrown on a, a teenage inmate there. Um, what, what struck me as, as most notable in this is that the county's human resources department, the county admitted that HR overlooked this, this prior employment at the juvenile center. And it also raises questions um, about an HR department where that's gotten a lot of attention lately. How are they making their decisions? How are they working through these questions? I don't understand how this gets past them. Well, and let, let's take it back a step. After the story was published about how she had been fired at the juvenile detention center four months before she was hired, the day after that, they, they changed the termination to a resignation the day after that story came out. How did that come about? I mean, was that just part of, a, of a, an appeals process that they had made through their, um, through their union? That was part of scrambling. I, I think Corey had reported that, you know, it was allowed to be a simple resignation on her part. But only after we reported that she had been hired after she had been fired. What was interesting is, is the county originally seemed to be saying they had been unaware of it, but your reporting showed that they, they had some knowledge of this and ignored it, right? It apparently came through on the background check that they ran that she worked at another county facility in corrections. So and they never bothered to, to look it up. That's apparently the case. It, 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 it raises questions about what's going on in our county's HR department. Then yesterday, they had a, uh, another jail guard, uh, as he showed up for work, get arrested because, uh, as according to the charges against him, he was taking drugs in to sell to prisoners. What's the deal there? Still getting details on that. I think we expect more information to come out, but this goes back to the question of, What's going on in the jail? We know that there's been problems there publicly f for months. These these piecemeal cases of COs allegedly acting badly doesn't appear to that flow isn't going to stop anytime soon, perhaps. And, and I think re uh, reporter Adam Faris is working on another story that says this goes well beyond a single jail guard, and it might be something that's uh, that's much deeper. So look for details on that. After the break, we'll be talking about the uh, effort to uh, contain lead in Cleveland and a, uh, uh, the move to reduce the size of council in Cleveland. This is This Week in the CLE. If you're enjoying our This Week in the CLE podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Cleveland.com's free morning newsletter, The Wake Up. It's waiting for you in your email when you arise each morning to bring you news from overnight in the previous day. If you read The Wake Up each morning, you're up to date. Sus subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters. And we're back. It's This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn here with report, or columnist Mark Namick, reporter Mary Kilpatrick. And in this segment, Mark Vosberg, who heads up our public interest and advocacy team, and special projects coordinator Laura Johnston, also the coordinator of Rock the Lake. 
Uh, Laura, we're going to start with you. We had an election Tuesday night that almost nobody paid attention to, but there was a lot of attention paid to one initiative in Parma. What was that about? That would be the pit bull ban. They've had it on for a long time. This idea was could they repeal it? And uh, only about 16% of voters turned out in the election, um, and it was only in a couple of uh, cities. But in Parma, the difference between the yes and the no was less than 20 votes. So um, assuming that holds, uh, there might be a recount for this. But it's it's a big deal. It's been a big deal in Lakewood, where they actually recently lifted their ban on pit bulls. What, what, what is it about the pit bull ban that just brings people out of the woodwork? This is one of our most read stories for a couple of days. Why? Because people love dogs, and they don't want to see an entire breed or number of breeds outlawed just because of their specific, uh, specific breed. And I think people feel like they should give individual dogs a chance. Mary? I think on the flip side, the people who feel passionately you know, about banning pit bulls uh, you know, there are a lot of ideas about pit bulls and, you know, ideas that they're nasty dogs or mean dogs. That's not necessarily the case. You know, there are mean pit bulls. There are mean dogs of any number of breeds, but I feel like the pit bull has developed a reputation a- around being a mean dog. And I think people have internalized that and there's there's fear uh, about allowing these dogs into the community. The pit bulls got all the attention, but there was a pretty significant development in Akron where uh, Mayor Oregon has has built uh, some power. And how did that play out? So this is the second time he's actually had to run for election um, because um, last time was right after uh, Don Plisquelic, um stepped down. And he actually um, endorsed a bunch of candidates on city council, and I think three out of four of them won in their primaries. So he's got some power. And um, like Cleveland, Akron is a Democratic town, so there might not be any real race in November. So did he do that because he was getting opposition to some of his initiatives and he wanted to have a team that would support what he's trying to do? Well, I think they, they've had some conflict on city council. It's, it's not always a yes um, vote. And some incumbents are losing their seats out of this. So this will be a whole new wave on city council. It's amazing. In Cleveland, there are a whole lot of movers and shakers that are paying very close attention to what's happening in Akron because he seems to be so dynamic and he's, he hasn't been in office that long. But Fresh he's leaving, blood. Yeah, he's really leaving a, a, a footprint. Um, so um, the, the move to finally uh, deal with lead paint in Cleveland has had traction this year like never before. This is something that our colleagues at the Plain Dealer uh, pushed on hard beginning five years ago, and it's taken a long time to see some movement. There was a, a grassroots effort, a petition drive that's been gummed up a little bit because they had um, wording that was questionable. But separately, uh, a coalition of nonprofits and governments and, and others uh, came out this week with some proposals for city council. What's going on with that, Mark? Uh, well, council gave the... Uh a, a pretty receptive hearing to the group. Uh, they're called uh, Lead Safe Cleveland Coalition. Um, they had earlier given council 33, I believe, recommendations. Um, at Monday's hearing, uh, council asked, uh, I would say, pretty intelligent questions. Um, 
one being who would pay um, led save I think very wisely pointed out that they were not asking for the city to shoulder the entire burden that the private sector and philanthropy would be weighing in 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 a big big way well I mean what's interesting about that is is that the the mayor who's been in office for a long time and really hasn't done anything about lead has has made his position that this isn't a Cleveland problem. This is a community problem, and if a solution comes forward that puts it all in the city, that's not going to happen, that it's got to be nonprofits, it's got to be corporate community, and, and it's got the significant government stand. They did seem to convey the message there that that they are building those resources from outside the city as well. Uh, and and uh, a member of the mayor's administration did say these proposals you're looking at seem to rest solely on the city. We're looking for more. Yes, but uh, out of that hearing to the administration, uh, the mayor's uh, chief of public affairs did say uh, the mayor supports the recommendations. One so, of, one it, of council's chief um, chief pushes, I guess, had to do with daycares. They didn't feel like daycare centers were appropriately addressed. Uh, well, well, daycares were not included in Lead Safe's proposal for inspections. Um, they said they were open to that, but they had not included it. There, there is no um, criminal whammy in these proposals. They very specifically decided not to go that way. But that actually found some disagreement with council members, right? A couple of council members felt there should be criminal penalties. Um, let's say very intentionally left them out in part because many of the landlords are really mom-and-pop operations with limited budgets and they one didn't want to put them out of business and displace families also many of them are black and they felt that this could further racial inequalities in justice so so what happens next do they take these proposals and actually put them together into some sort of legislation well yes first council uh, i believe is going to hold several more hearings before they actually take up legislation that's probably not going to happen before council goes on summer break Um, their last meeting is june 3rd so uh, probably later this year some other um, uh, conflict came out of council monday night having to do with columbus day what happened there indeed uh commission uh councilman bashir jones uh came up uh, during council meeting and in a non-binding resolution uh, suggested that they do away with Columbus Day and replace it with Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, And this drew uh, considerable objections from several councilmen who are Italian-American or have Italian-American ancestry. Laura. So I guess about six states and 130 cities have already done this, so it, it's a trend. Um, I checked Columbus because obviously it's named Columbus, Ohio is named for, for Columbus, and uh, they actually didn't close City Hall this past year on Columbus. They decided to focus on Veterans Day instead. And in Sandusky, uh, they actually gave all uh, their city employees 
they're planning to give out election day off instead of Columbus Day. So I feel like a lot of cities are moving away from the idea of celebrating somebody they say who didn't really discover this country. Yeah, I don't think you're going to see it anytime soon in Cleveland for this reason that the uh, Bashir Jones, who's behind it, uh, has shown that he is. Uh, got a lot to learn about resolutions and gathering support from what I've been told behind the scenes. You know, he really didn't talk to those council members who had significant Italian-American populations. Um, You kind of need to get that kind of support on board. Um, You really saw it when he stood out there in the steps of City Hall largely alone. This is a case where as a council person, you don't want to be in the spotlight alone on a resolution, which really should all be figured out before you head forward i i think this is going to 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 die right now until it's re recast with a stronger cast of characters behind him well and as we've pointed out often resolutions for city council really have no authority what i'm a little bit surprised at mark given that that there is um there are council members of an italian american descent that that there wasn't an effort to say look columbus represents a bunch of things that are bad that we really don't want to celebrate anymore can we set aside a different day or some other way to celebrate italian americans i mean throngs um, of people celebrate this and 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 um, you know little italy comes alive but there but bashir didn't really offer an alternative it was just like let's get rid of the italian american holiday altogether and and end it right i i think that kind of idea might have arisen had bashir not caught everyone off guard as mark said he just threw it out there without talking to anyone else but uh, native americans it, who stood with him have been pretty strong about supporting those days that eliminate Columbus Day. So that may have influenced his decision to, to use the same day, but the, the larger point stands that you know the, the lack of politicking going on behind the scenes that you need to do wasn't there. And, and council is very driven by tradition and protocol, and he didn't follow any of it. Well, one way to get consensus is to have fewer people that you have to go to. And, Mark, there's an effort to shrink the council. What's happening? We have been reporting since last November uh, about a group called Clevelanders First, which um, includes some local residents and uh, business folks, including Tony George of Westlake, uh, but who has businesses in the city and has taken active role in politics here. They think council isn't responsive enough. Uh, They don't get enough done. So they want to reduce the size of council, uh, essentially cut it down to nine, cut their pay, um, and they're gathering signatures. This is the same process we hear a lot about, um, and we know it's fraught with problems, uh, both for, for numerous reasons. One, the, the people who sign often are not registered at the addresses they claim, uh, so they need about a little over 8,000 signatures, but in reality, uh, good ones. They'll need to collect 25,000 plus They've reported to us that they uh, they have about eight eight thousand now, and they have to keep going. I've been getting pictures sent to me by one of the activists uh, showing me the stack next to a ruler. Uh, they've got you know four, five, six inches of petitions. It's not enough. And you know from your reporting, council members are very, very worried about this. They are worried about it because uh, I think the perception in the spirit right now is. Yeah, what, what do we need counsel for? You know, we, we keep reading about these problems. Um, what are they doing for me from a technical standpoint of getting the signatures, getting it on the ballot, and running that campaign? That's a different 
different animal, but I think right now they, they are concerned. And, and a large part of this is driven by my coverage of Councilman Ken Johnson's expense reports, which, you know, on so many levels are just small and petty, but that is exactly the kind of thing that drives people nuts. Why do you do that? Mark? We, we've also reported that uh, councils in, in comparable-sized cities are much smaller and much uh, lower pay, so uh, they have reason to be worried. Uh, there's a lot to well, and they're and they're remember their pay rose when back in the yes, day. You and I were covering city hall because they had put a clause in where it went up automatically with no vote, and it went up by several tens well, of thousands. Over eighty thousand. Yeah, so. they, they make a good. And, and council will argue two things: one, uh, that they have we have to compare the size of staffs that other cities have compared to theirs and there could be differences there and the other argument and this starts from the mayor's chair because i've heard it from him directly that um you know i want as many people as possible that can respond directly to the residents and eliminating council members makes that more difficult and 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 that's an argument that they will carry forward in this debate that like you need us here The, the more you widen that ward the less you might hear from us and one of the arguments right now against the reform of county government is that it might have uh, put too much power into too few hands uh, the prosecutor michael malley is out there saying we need we need more more people in power so that people have someone to go to i got to move on and uh, it seems like we really do have to talk about something that's foremost in everybody's mind when's it going to stop raining uh it seems like this has been one of the wettest springs we've ever had mary i think you have the numbers what what how bad is it so since january 1st cleveland has gotten 13.6 inches um normal for the area is 12 uh, about 12 inches so we're a little over an inch above normal according to the national weather service but even though we're only a little more than an inch above normal, we're about to hit a record with the, the where Lake Erie's at, right? Yeah, Laura? we're 27 inches above normal in Lake Erie. And that's because 92% of the water in the lake isn't coming from us and our watershed. It's coming from the upper lakes and coming down. And so water levels have been really high in the Great Lakes for a couple of years now. And uh, they are about to tie a record in May, uh, the forecast. It, it's complicated the way that the... Um, Army Corps of Engineers looks at this. They look at the uh, the uh, height above sea level. So we're um, at 574.2 inches above sea level, and they average it every day over a month in four different places to get their monthly average. So we're about to tie it for May. Actually, at the beginning of this month, we were above the highest average ever from 1986 in May. And the peak of the year for the Great Lakes is normally in June. So if it keeps raining, we're going to keep going up. And then the wind and the waves make it worse. I was in Sandusky yesterday, and the Jet Express um, dock was completely underwater. There are parking lots there that you can't park in. I mean, and it wasn't even super wavy that day. So we're starting to see it. It's not going to be so bad in Cleveland where we're above the waterline, but elsewhere it's going to be bad. Okay, we have a resolution on a story we talked about on last week's episode. We had the mystery of why uh, key fobs, automobile key fobs, and garage door openers suddenly weren't working in one uh, North Olmsted neighborhood uh, o- over the past week. We've learned exactly why. What happened there? So, yeah, the mystery of North Olmsted has solved a um, 
man had a man-made device in his home, um, some kind of thing that put out radio waves, and it was interfering with key fobs and and garage door openers in the entire neighborhood. So the police tracked this guy down, knocked on his door, said, don't do it again. So now they're working. I'm really disappointed this wasn't a fold in the matrix. (laughs) That would have been far more interesting. A fold in the matrix. Okay, after we come back, Troy Smith will be here to defend from his many other panelists his uh, ranking of the best album of the 80s. This is This Week in the CLE. If you want to read what Ohio's decision makers read, subscribe to Capital Letter, your first read of the morning newsletter from Cleveland.com. It's packed with tightly written summaries of everything you need to be up to date on the state's political scene. Subscribe at Cleveland.com backslash newsletters. And we're back on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Eric Heisick, and in this segment... Pop culture writer Troy Smith, music writer Annie Nikoloff, and their editor Mike Norman. We're here to talk about a piece Troy published earlier this week that proved to be one of the most popular pieces in the past month about the top 80s albums by Rock Hall inductees. Before I turn this over to the uh, others to challenge Troy, I want to get my question in. Uh, Troy, I was surprised to see The Joshua Tree by you 2 not making your top 10 and was just curious what the thinking was there. I think that's one of the, the great albums, even though I'm the big Springsteen guy. You know, I think the, the second half of The Joshua Tree is overrated. I think the best songs are on the front end. But, you know, my opinion of the album actually changed after I saw The Joshua Tree concert twice. I went, and you really feel that, especially in a live setting. You know, it kind of, you know, it's anticlimactic when you get to that second half. Mike, what do you think of that? Well, I think it belongs in the top ten. I mean, you're looking at the first seven songs on that album uh, are masterpieces. Where the Streets Have No Name, Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, With or Without You, Bullet the Blue Sky. So I think it belongs definitely in the top ten. Troy, you put Purple Rain number one. What was your thinking behind that? Uh, you know, I think it's it's one of the most inventive albums of the 80s, one of the biggest albums of the 80s. I think it's the total package to me um, from the artists that I think dominated the 80s the most with their collection of music. Um, Purple Rain is just, when I think 80s, it's Purple Rain. Uh, every song, to me, is, is a masterpiece. It's diverse. It's Purple Rain. What fleshed out your top five? Um, number two, we had It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy. Three, Thriller. No explanation with that. Um, <laughs> Talking Heads came in at four with Remain in Light and Paul's Boutique from the Beastie Boys uh, rounded out the top five. Annie, Eric, what did, what did you? What's your take on this list? I um, I don't know if I have a problem with the top five. I was actually focused on number thirty-three. <laughs> um, we're gonna go real deep into this. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble's Texas Flood. Now, how how can you, Troy, a man who loves music, a, a man who really professes to listen to a lot of it? Try to defend the man who basically ushered in the worst era of white boy blues music we've probably seen in the last 35 years. You know, I think, you know, it's hard. We were talking about the 80s, first of all, so there's a lot of stuff that got ushered in on these albums that (laughs) doesn't hold up too well. But, um, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan was a throwback. I will say... Every time I listen to that album, I think of the Patrick Swayze movie Roadhouse. <laughs> so it's like a double-edged sword. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really. That's like saying, you know, how can you speak of Pearl Jam without mentioning every horrible rock sticker that came about afterwards, <laughs> you know, blaming Eddie Vedder. Uh, so I think it's a great album. Annie, what would be your number one? 
My number one would be Disintegration by The Cure. Um, that's just an iconic one for me, one that I grew up with. Um, I am not an 80s baby. I was born four years after the 80s were over, so uh, admittedly not the biggest, uh, you know, expert in these albums, but that is the one that stood out to me and my favorite. How emo of you. Did that <laughs> make the bit. list? Was that on the list? It's pretty high up. I think it was number six. Uh, I think that's the Ultimate Cure album, mm-hmm. uh, really the blueprint for. I, I think go. Oh, I take emo all the way back to that, um, where some people might look, you know, more in the '90s. Uh, it's a great album. Mike Norman, you predate the '80s, so what's your <laughs> li- what do, makes your like top three decades? Um, I'm going to go with Born in the USA, which not only is Bruce Springsteen's best album of the '80s, but the best album of the '80s. Period, in my humble opinion. Doesn't every like every Springsteen it, hold on, hold on, fan you know, gags right now. <laughs> having it number 18 is a mistake, and um, I just view it as a legendary, almost perfect rock album. It's, it's chock full of hits, attitude, message. The Springsteen wonks can get down into the weeds about Nebraska, the river, born in the USA, the 70s, all of that. But I believe it's the the full realization of the Springsteen myth. It had the big MTV hits. It had classics like No Surrender and My Hometown. And then when you throw in uh, I'm on Fire, Cover Me in Glory Days, you have a masterpiece. So all the songs are pretty great. I wouldn't put it as my favorite, but I'll defend it. The one thing I can't get over, and it's a problem with a lot of 80s albums, those drums. It works on the song Born in the USA, but those you know, massive stadium-level production and drums, that is maybe the epitome of how bad Bruce Springsteen on album can sound. But, you know, Troy had four Springsteen albums on his list. He had The River, he had Nebraska, he had Born in the USA, and he had Tunnel of Love. And Nebraska was the one you ranked as the highest. Yeah, I think it's the best. I think it has the most compelling Springsteen characters, which is my favorite part of his music. You know, when you look at these outlaws and the murders and the stories, Tunnel of Love is a little more personal because he points that finger inward. Like, this is Springsteen's pain. Uh, Born in the USA, it's cheesy 80s. It's great <laughs> pop songs. I agree with Eric. Uh, I don't know what Mike's talking about, taking that over um, Born to Run. I don't know you know, what he's talking about there. But that that's a whole different decade. Um, the River is just it's so long. You know, It's bound to be a little flawed. So, But that's a lot of Springsteen fans' favorite Springsteen album. <laughs> Eric, what's your number one? Of the 80s? Yeah. Oh God, I don't know if I was actually prepared for that question, even though that's <laughs> Troy. That, that is what you do for a living. Um, I was actually zeroing in on the Blue Mask by Lou Reed. I was actually really happy to see that on there. That has always been fairly high up for me. I'm kind of sad. I think you put New York higher. Um, you know, that was an album Lou Reed did with Robert Quine, who was a, a 70s punk guitarist, later worked with Matthew Sweet, since passed away. That is maybe some of his best songwriting, aside from what he did with the Velvet Underground in his early solo career. So... That would be pretty darn high, so kudos to you. I thought you were going straight out of Compton all the way. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'll tell you, we were at a bar once, Eric was there and we were, you know, it was a bunch of coworkers. He gets up and blasts straight out of Compton on the jukebox, and this wasn't the most diverse bar. So every person in that bar looks at myself and the two other black guys who are all together <laughs> standing five feet from the jukebox as if what have you done? <laughs> It's one of my favorite Eric moments. <laughs> Speaking of the 80s, you, uh, you put together another post this week using your objective formula for measuring uh, the, the value of Rock Hall inductees, and you looked at the bands that have not been inducted and where they would rank. Uh, sadly, even though we talked about her last week, Tina Turner doesn't make this list either. Um, who were some of the, the highest-ranking bands that, that would 
if they had not been snubbed, ranked high in your, your rating. Yeah, so we use the point system we use for the Rock Hall Tears story, uh, which is based on a bunch of lists around the web that rank, you know, influence in albums and songs. Uh, Depeche Mode scored really high. Sonic Youth, Pixies. Number one was the Smiths. And I haven't done every snub, but I'm pretty sure the Smiths would be the highest snub for any decade that is not in the Rock Hall. Um, what tier would they have been in then? The third tier, I believe. Um, th- their point total is 430. And I, the only person I can think would come close, and I have to push this out, if you, if you think John Coltrane should be in the Rock Hall, I think he would come very close to their score, if not higher. But the Smiths, by far, you know, huge score. Four albums on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. The Tina Turner thing is interesting because there's a lot of stuff that it's hard to factor in, right? Like, it's all these lists. She has one quintessential solo album. But, you know, then they want to put her influence with Ike, so it, you can't really separate that. And then, as you guys know, being adults in the 80s, she was one of the biggest touring artists. I mean, she changed the whole touring industry, setting records, and we, we don't get to take that into account um, with that with that point system. Yeah, it remains a surprise that, that she's not been inducted as a solo act because she was so yeah. so big as a solo act. You can check out uh, Troy's list on Cleveland.com, along with a lot of other ranking he's done for the rock hall that wraps it up for this week in the clee uh this episode and i want to say thanks to mark namick jane cahoon rich exner mary kilpatrick eric isaac courtney astolfi pete kraus mark vosberg laura johnston troy smith annie nikoloff and mike norman check in every thursday night or friday morning for the latest episode i'm chris quinn and you've been listening to this week in the cle